This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 34. If HR's objective and HR is really focused on building trust and HR is other-centered and we have no agenda, we can have such an impact for the organization because the success of the CEO and the success of the senior leaders and the success of all of our employees, that's where we get joy and fulfillment from. If we don't have an agenda and everyone understands that and everyone trusts that, then they're going to bring us into their hardest problem because they can trust us and they know we're here to help them solve their hardest problem. And we earn that every day and we sustain that every day. And in my experience in these four companies, if you do that and you work that every day, it always works. What makes someone a great HR leader? Why is it important that the CEO's agenda be HR's agenda? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast. The only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Hey everyone, this is another big week on the Future of HR podcast for two very good reasons. First, over the past weekend, we hit, wait for it, 25,000 downloads. 25,000 downloads. To be honest, the reaction to the podcast has surpassed my expectations. And it's a little humbling, frankly, to know that so many of you have spent so much time and got so much value from this podcast. The amazing part is that 60% of those downloads have come in the last two months Have we've seen many more listeners finding out about the podcast thanks to you. My goal has always been and always will be to give back to our field, and it's awesome and humbling to see the podcast making this difference. I'm so thankful for each of you for listening to the podcast and appreciate your help in spreading the word to other next-generation HR leaders. Let's keep the momentum going, and I can't wait to come back and tell you when we had 100,000 downloads. I'm also incredibly thankful for all of our guests as it's their insights and generosity in sharing their experiences that have made these conversations so valuable. Every guest who's been on the podcast is just as passionate about inspiring the next generation of HR leaders as I am. And so I want to say a big shout out to everyone who's been on the show. Really appreciate it. The second reason this is a big week is that we've got a terrific guest, Matt Breitfelder. Matt is the global head of human capital and partner at Apollo Global Management, a high-growth alternative asset management firm with more than $500 billion under management. Before joining Apollo, Matt was the chief talent officer at BlackRock, where he also served as a member of the operating committee. Previously, he had talent and strategy roles at MasterCard, PwC, CEB, and Gardner. Matt also serves as the chair of AI Analytics and the Future of Work Advisory Group at Georgetown University. Matt has been named one of the top 25 CHROs globally by Stanford Business School and Into Growth. If you are a CHRO or aspire to be one, you will want to listen to every minute of this episode as I guarantee that you will not only be inspired, but come away with some actionable ideas that will make you a better HR leader. During my conversation, Matt and I discuss why he believes the CEO's agenda should also be the HR's agenda the three things that define all successful CHROs, why you should be co-creating your culture with your employees' input and how to do it, 
What he learned about coaching and the importance of psychological safety from Pete Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks coach. Why caring, clarity, and challenge are the keys to being a great coach and much more. Matt, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate you being here. Really excited to talk with you today and really excited to hear more about your career journey, how you think about HR. And just really, I think your unique background is going to be really interesting for folks. So tell me more about how did you go from starting your career in international trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce to a career in HR? That is not a typical career path. It's not. I, I think it's probably, I owe a lot of it to my parents, as, as we all do. I was raised by an entrepreneur and a therapist. They were both very passionate about their careers. And in a lot of ways, I, I think my career in HR came from just being bilingual, of being really interested in business and really interested in psychology from kind of being the permanent intern of my dad's small business and the thought partner as my mom was reviewing, you know, treatment plans for her patients. I found both things equally interesting. When I got to college, I remember talking to my advisor about saying I'd like to take econ and psychology together. And this was before the evolution of behavioral economics or organizational psychology. And my, I remember my advisor saying, oh, those two things don't, don't really go together. And I think the, the right program probably existed somewhere, but I didn't find it at the time. So I focused on econ. I went into international trade. I got very interested in the psychology of markets and the psychological components of economics and ended up in government working as an international trade negotiator during, during a really disruptive transformational period when the WTO was being created, a, a bunch of different trade talks were happening. I was a specialist in the European Union and I loved negotiations because it was all about the psychology of what every country at the table was after and what we were looking for in the U.S. and how we could find, you know, the art of the deal. Uh, never planned on staying in government for my whole career. So business school was an obvious next step. And an interesting thing happened in business school. One of the great privileges of, of going to an MBA program is you get to hear from a lot of different types of business leaders. And I got to spend time with some of the great CEOs of that era and you get to ask them questions about their jobs and what it's really like. And an interesting pattern started to emerge in those conversations and classroom discussions. The CEOs I admired the most always said roughly the same thing. Hmm. They said the most fulfilling, most impactful, most important part of my job as a CEO is selling culture. And I'm so proud that I get to spend 25% of my time on that. And the IT programs I implement or the cost-cutting drives or the new market are all exciting, important parts of the job. But the durable parts of the job are what you do with talent and culture, the lives that you impact of the people that you take a chance on, that you bet on, who you take the time to mentor and develop. That's the durable work of a CEO. And I remember sitting in class saying, boy, it's such a shame that 
HR hasn't developed more as a profession where that's an obvious spot for an MBA to go into because the CEO, the best CEOs are saying 25% of their job is the most important part of their job. Wouldn't it be interesting to pursue a career where you could spend 100% of your time on the most important work? And as someone who'd been shaped by all that time with my mom growing up, I was particularly intrigued in that. But in that era of Harvard Business School, we had a lot of classes on leadership, but there really wasn't anything on HR as a profession. It just wasn't that popular. And so I did what a lot of business school students do. I went into consulting and I love the problem solving of consulting. But one of the things you quickly find in the consulting space is that all of the hard problems also revolve around talent and culture. And boy, we can implement a lot of great strategies if the people just didn't get in the way. Why are the people so challenging to implement a new direction? And when you look at the data, a roughly 70% of new corporate strategies fail. And when you look at the root causes of why that is, there are almost always issues that are right in the wheelhouse of HR. So in that period, I, as a consultant, I'm just looking at all those facts saying, boy, this just seems like a no-brainer that if you could take this consulting MBA skill set and you could apply it to these really important human problems, you could have real magic and you could see, when did Moneyball come out? I think it's also during that period, you could see what was happening in sports and analytics. And I was looking at all of those trends saying, I can just see this happening in HR. And it's funny how this works. I remember talking to my wife about this and she was kind of coaching me through it and helping me clarify my thinking about maybe I really should make a career change. And within a week of that conversation with her, I got called by a headhunter from representing PwC, the big professional services firm, who said the following. This recruiter calls me and she says, um, our HR team is making some really innovative bets. And we're looking for someone who is a really good coach and really good at strategy. And we can find one or the other, but it's really hard to find both. And someone said that you could do both. And I thought, is this, uh, did Jen put you up to this? Is, is this a real call? She said, who's Jen? Uh, this is a real call. And at the time I was working at 20th and K in DC. And I said, where's the job? She said, it's at 19th and K in Washington, D.C. And I said, okay, that, this is really starting to get very interesting. And, um, and anyway, that led to a series of conversations with PwC, which got me really excited about that as a place to start a career in HR. And I feel like I got really lucky because they were innovative, they were bold, and they were really analytical, as you can imagine, wanting to be able to measure everything to make sure that it worked properly for someone like me coming from an MBA and economics background. That was wonderful training. And then having done that at, P at PwC for a while, I then subsequently, you know, I've been part of three great HR teams at Apollo, at BlackRock and at MasterCard. Yeah, that's a terrific career journey. And we actually have some similarities. My dad was a PhD in economics, entrepreneur, small business entrepreneur. My mom was a marriage family therapist. So it was the same thing growing up where you had this yin and yang of 
we'd be driving around. My dad would be asking me questions about business and market share and why things work that way. And my mom was more, how are you feeling? <laughs> Getting in touch with yourself, right? And so it always felt that natural to do what we do, but it wasn't really a field to your point. And what I think is interesting that when you were at Harvard MBA and listening to some of these CEOs talk about town and culture, HR really, we hadn't matured, but now we're fast forward to 2023 and we think about HR is town and culture. That's the heart of it. And so it's kind of come full circle to where you saw where it was in that, in the classroom for you. But you know, it's one of my favorite articles, so I have to bring it up. You and Daisy Dowling, who's actually a a podcast guest, uh, wrote an article called Why You Went Into HR, and it was really from a Harvard Business MBA perspective, moving into HR, which at the time, I remember it was very inspiring for me. We didn't know each other then. Uh, it was many years later, we actually met, and I was like, oh my gosh, I remember both of you. Because it was like, this article spoke to me about why I'm going into it, but I have a business mindset. Tell me more about what made you and Daisy decide to write that article. It's a really good question. I, as I mentioned, when I first had this idea, there wasn't a lot happening at Harvard Business School to help me advance the idea. And there's thousands of people in the Harvard alumni directory. And I remember at the time I went into the directory and said, are there any interesting people in HR? And there really wasn't anybody. It just wasn't popular at the time. So I started this journey. I get this job at PwC. And shortly after I started, Daisy called me, who she had been a classmate of mine in business school. And she said, Hey, I heard you went into HR. I'm thinking about doing the same thing. What's your advice? And so we immediately bonded uh, at that moment. That was probably about 15 years ago, kept in touch, shared stories, and kind of coached each other on these new careers we were having. And somehow she and I got in touch with the editorial team at, at HBR. Daisy had written some articles with them previously. And they said, so what's it like for you guys being Harvard uh, MBAs working in HR? It's such an unusual thing. And around that time, you may recall, Fast Company had a cover story that said, why we hate HR. That's right. Which really frustrated both of us. And so we're talking to the editor of HBR and they said, I think the world needs the counterpoint to that article because it was so obnoxious and so off from the way that Daisy and I were looking at it. And the editor said, so what's it like when you go to an alumni reunion to, you know, what do people say? And it's really interesting because their first reaction was, oh, you went into HR. Where did it all go wrong? At? But then when they asked me what I did all day and I explained, well, we're working on the most important issues facing the future strategy of the company. We're mapping a talent strategy, that business strategy. We're coaching the senior leadership. We're deep into helping the organization outperform for a very long period of time. And we're unlocking the drivers of that outperformance. When I explained it that way, they'd say, wow, that sounds like an amazing job. Are you sure that they are? And I said, why can't it be? And in those conversations, HBR said, okay, let's turn this into an article. And they were the most interested in the personal side of the story, which is the part we were the least comfortable talking about because we had no interest in talking about ourselves. But, you know, we worked through that. We told the story and we made some predictions that we felt that the analytical drive forward of HR was very likely to happen and very likely to massively increase the impact and prominence and visibility of our field. and. 
And we kind of left it at that. And then it became a bestseller. And to this day, I still get emails and calls from aspiring HR folks asking about that and wanting to talk about it. And it's just really interesting. Daisy and I had our 20-year reunion at Harvard last year. And the world has changed so much. 20 years later, there are so many of our classmates that have decided to go into HR for the same reasons we did. We just happened to notice them earlier that it's now really popular. Harvard now has multiple HR classes and Daisy and I will frequently go back to HBS to address those classes and they kind of treat it as a where are they now type of situation. But it's really exciting for me to see MBAs seeing what we saw and wanting to get into this field because I'm really proud to be part of the HR field. I think it's an incredible craft and vocation. And it's been an honor to be part of this and to hopefully be contributing to the field. And I think your podcast is a great example and a great contribution to our field. So thank you, JP, for taking this on and sharing all these stories. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I've said multiple times in the podcast, I believe we need more MBAs in the field because of that business perspective, because you kind of need the hard and soft skills, right? You need to be able to understand the P&L and speak that language. And really to have the huge impact you're talking about, you've got to be able to be there, go toe-to-toe and support and coach those business leaders and understand the issues they're facing and understand the organization's facing. But you've been a little bit of a trendsetter and you know, you've worked at MasterCard, BlackRock, and now, of course, Apollo. But talk to us a little more about how those experiences have shaped your leadership philosophy and how HR can impact the business, the organization, its team members. Because I think it's really unique. I feel really blessed and lucky that I've had the opportunity to work at these companies and learn from some incredible people. Of course, so much of HR is about the CEO. And I've been so lucky to get to work with Mark Rowan at Apollo, with Larry Fink at BlackRock, Ajay Banga, MasterCard, looks like Ajay's about to become the president of the World Bank. Um, Incredible uh, opportunity for him. But learning from CEOs like that has been just tremendous for CEOs who really get the power and potential of HR and how important these levers are to help them fulfill the vision they have for these companies. Um, At the end of the day, the HR agenda is the CEO's agenda. It's the same thing. And having a bold CEO who intuitively understands what HR can do and how important the levers of HR are to helping them achieve their vision is so important. And the other thing about these organizations that I've worked in is they're really analytical, measure everything, prove it. And they're full of skeptical people who normally haven't seen progressive or innovative HR previously, or they may have seen some of it, but they're basically saying, hey, these ideas are really interesting. That's great. Let's see if it actually works. And I welcome that skepticism because I think, you know, and we've seen the rise of people analytics, I think is really helpful to accelerating the change of our field because hypothesis testing is something that almost every business leader is really comfortable with as a way of solving problems. Most big HR change initiatives are about hypothesis testing. And when you frame it that way and you say, hey, we all love data. In HR, we got a lot of data. 
we can we can run that play the same way any other corporate function can in the same level of precision as they can. And I think we should stand tall on that in the HR profession. And there's a lot of really cool work happening in people analytics all around the world that I think is helping us tremendously. The other point I'd make is if I reflect on the role of the CHRO in particular based on the, the experience I've had in these four companies, I'd really distill it down to three things. And I'm a big fan of the rule of threes on any problem to solve or any idea to break it down into its subcomponents. And the three things I think about for the CHRO role is number one, we're operational leaders. So just like any other executive in a company, we're accountable for really critical functions. And in HR, we're talking about compensation, recruiting, talent management, succession, DNI, HR technology, HR operations. These are all very specific craft employee relations that you, people can spend many, many years mastering. And the deeper you go into them, the more you realize how difficult these crafts are and how humbling it is as you're going deeper and deeper into building your expertise in each of these components. So, of course, we're operational leaders first, that the organization is relying on us for our expertise and our problem solving for all the different elements that we're responsible for. But the second piece is change leader. And a really big part of the job is marrying the talent strategy with the CEO's business strategy. And what does business strategy mean? It means the CEO wants to take the company in a particular direction. And that always means some sort of change. So then our job is to mobilize the organization in that way to get the right talent to achieve that goal, often in new markets, new skills, um, new technology, what have you. And the reality is most organizations and most human beings really don't like change that much. <laughs> people like being comfortable. People, psychological safety is really important to people. And so there's a lot of resistance to change. And the work of the CHRO of, or of any HR professional is how do you unlock that? How do you have enough empathy to understand why people are resisting change and to help bridge the gap between their experience and their corner of the company and what the CEO is asking them to do and to unlock that? And again, we're really lucky in the HR profession. So much compelling research has been done on change management. We have incredible tools at our disposal to unlock chain, but make no mistake. It's not for the faint of heart. It's really, really hard work. And then the third part, which, you know, I think is arguably the most critical component is coaching. I think our role as a coach and trusted advisor to the senior leadership of our companies is absolutely paramount because we have access to lots of information on what's working and what's not working with individuals, with teams, and ultimately what the obstacles are to the CEO achieving their vision. And we're all working in service to that. So our coaching job is understanding what's going on, helping people see things more clearly and challenging them to step into and lean into those opportunities to make things better and to make themselves more and more impactful. And I would also say the trick is it's not just for the senior leadership. 
I think so much of what we do in HR, which is, you know, there's a lot of unsung hero components to our jobs, but one of the most important is building trust at every level, at every corner, in every role of our companies, so that everyone who works here feels comfortable coming to me or coming to someone on my team to share what they're going through, what they're seeing, and what they personally think we can do better to achieve our goals. So I'll often say I'm like the walking suggestion box. If you believe that our job is to coach, including ourselves, to get better today than we were yesterday, um, unbelievably important part of the role. Well, I love your rule of three. I agree. Operationally, we have a lot to get accomplished, right? That are really important levers. We're always driving change, which I think you're right, is probably the hardest, one of the hardest things about the job. Because organizations never change as quickly as we want, or people don't change as fast as organizations change. And that coaching piece is, is really critical. How do you think about high-performing organization? A lot of people say that we're a high-performing organization, but for you, Matt, in your own words, what does that phrase mean? I love that phrase, and I think about that phrase a lot. And at Apollo, I'll often say, Look, my job is to help Mark, our CEO, create the ultimate high-performing organization at Apollo. And I guess if I step back from it, I would say on the most fundamental level, when we use this phrase high-performing organization, what does it mean? I think it means the organization and the people who work here are obsessed with outperforming expectations over a long period of time. So many great companies can outperform for a period of time, especially if we're riding an industry wave, we've got secular trends in our favor, we have a temporary competitive advantage or innovation, but it's much more difficult and frankly, a lot more fun to pursue, obsessively pursue, how do you outperform over and over and over again? The book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, you know, uh, really shaped my thinking on this. And I think it explains this concept as well as anybody else has. And I love his concept of the flywheel. You're trying to create this flywheel of constant progress, constant challenge, constant self-improvement. And you have to stay on it literally every single day, uh, almost like exercise. You know, you, can't, you actually can't stop. You have to stay really disciplined in order to keep evolving and keep outperforming over a long period of time. I think that's always the goal. And our CEO, Mark, loves the Peter Drucker phrase and says it all the time, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You get the culture right, then you're creating the enabling conditions to outperform over and over and over again. Strategies will change as market conditions change, as you come up with new ideas. But culture endures, but culture also evolves. And you have to embrace the fact that it needs to constantly evolve and you've got to tend to it pretty closely every well, day. I agree. And I think the piece you're bringing up around a high-performing organization, which is not just for a quarter, for a year, but for an extended period of time applies to team members as well. Right, our most high-performing team members are people who are going to outperform for not a quarter, but for years, right? And have that track record of success. And that's what organizations have to do as well. The challenge is how do you get everyone pulling the same direction like you talked about, where 
it is that continuous flywheel. It's a great definition. Right. Well, and, and to your point, JP, if you think about the same exact principle does apply to individuals, right? So in HR, we get this great privilege. There's a lot of great privileges and blessings of this craft, but one of them is we get to work with some of the most successful people in the world. And so we get to learn from that energy and that expertise and that leadership skill. And an interesting phenomenon that I've noticed across the course of my career is there is a difference between high performing people and the click above that, however you want to define it as the enduring high performing people who can do it over and over again. It's kind of like in music, the one hit wonder versus the Paul McCartney who just keep doing it over and over and over again. And the trait that I've noticed in the leaders who are really good at this, who are enduringly outperforming is actually more humility than the click right under that. Because once you have a winning formula, people are really proud of their winning formula and they'd really love to slow down the necessary grit or the 10,000 hours if they possibly can and just keep playing that hit song over and over again. But the best of the best are not satisfied with one hit song. They want 10, they want 20, they want 30, which, which makes them more humble because they're the, they become more open to what am I missing? What are my blind spots? What am I not hearing? What am I not understanding? Where's the puck in my industry really going? And I love that impulse. Like that's what we're talking about. And in, in Collins's book, you know, many of your listeners have probably read this book. If you haven't, I urge you to read it or read the HBR article on level five leadership. He distills down in the companies in his study, you know, which has been around for a long time, but I'm sure if he refreshed it now, he'd see exactly the same pattern because it's just so intuitive that the behavior, the two biggest behaviors that he saw in those CEOs who outperformed for decades were fierce resolve and humility together. We all expect fierce resolve, but humility is kind of surprising, but it's not that surprising if you've spent, if you've been lucky enough to spend time with some of these massive outperformers, they're the ones asking for feedback. They're the ones asking about their blind spots because they know how difficult it is to outperform over a long period of time. Yeah. Humility is so important as a leader. Matt, the other thing you really, you are passionate about is around HR using data. And we've already talked about that. It's come up mul multiple times today in our talk, but specifically using employee data, employee surveys to listen, identify gaps and drive change. And you've built a pretty specific approach that you think is really helping or can help organizations be more high performing and maybe be more humble. Can you talk more about how you're approaching that at Apollo without giving away trade secrets? <laughs> yeah, I can at least explain a little. And for the people analytics practitioners listening to this, I'm sure they could give me a run for my money in the way that I think about this, which is the beauty of this profession is we can always evolve and keep learning. But yeah, I would say that um, there's a formal part to this and there's an informal part. To this. And maybe we start with the formal part. So number one, how do you outperform a very long, over a very long period of time? You got to keep taking in information and you got to be willing to make hard changes that are necessary to keep evolving. A big principle of this is you got to co-create your culture with your employees. So the CEO's got a vision, the company's got a track record. You already have a winning formula that's gotten you where you are. But as our friend Marshall Goldsmith says, what got you here won't get you there. 
So what's next? How does the formula evolve? And if you want to attract and retain the best people in the world in your industry, you got to listen hard to what they care about. You're not always going to agree with them, but you really should listen. And then you should consider that information in how we continue to evolve. Now, the big thing about data, and if I had to distill down the future of HR to two things, I would say it's data and coaching. The data tells you if you're really good at people analytics, and Prasad Seti from his long tenure at Google and others can teach us a lot about this. If you're really good at analytics, your analytics tell you with a heat map of which levers matter the most, which issues matter the most to your people. And if you run interesting correlations, you can get really precise about that. And in HR, if I'm doing well, I got a hundred hours of demand in my day and I got to narrow it down to my favorite 10 to 12. <laughs> data helps me do that, helps me understand what matters the most, but I'm still coaching, my, still using the HR intervention or leadership or coaching skill set. The data is just pointing me in the right direction and keeping me to your point, humble and open and honest about what's working, what's not working. Now, back to the formal part. There was a Wall Street Journal article two or three years ago that said, the employee survey is dead. We should just get rid of this thing. It's not very useful. And I immediately thought, oh boy, just like the Fast Company article, I want to take completely the other side of that argument because it should be dead if you don't use it and you don't respect your employees enough to co-create the culture with them. But let's assume that you actually really do use it and of course, your employees will be skeptical if you don't share with them your insights, what you learned and what you're planning and doing about it. But if you do those things, and I've been lucky enough to work in companies where we always, the survey was paramount. The survey was everything because it kept us honest. And all four organizations that I've worked in, this has been totally fundamental. Where at Apollo, we've got 90 plus percent response rates because our employees trust us that we're going to ask them what they think. We're going to take them seriously. We're going to say, here's what we heard you say is working and not working. We're going to put resources against the most important things that we need to address. And then you'll give us a report card again in a year. And it's very straightforward and very authentic. And I would argue any company of any size can make the survey the foundation of how you keep the culture fresh and outperforming and high-performing over a very long period of time. And I often say to people, you need those confidential comments and have a glass of wine and read. And the companies I work in, these are big companies are reading thousands of comments, but you got to take it in and just understand where people are coming from. And if you understand where they're coming from, you take in that information and you make direct choices on here's what we're going to do differently. Here's what we don't want to change. And if you're honest about that, I think. You can build and sustain trust because people will know that they've been heard, that we're making choices. And having that data and having some of the great tools that are now available in HR technology, like LinkedIn alone, like the data that LinkedIn has to help you understand that your talent flows is incredibly helpful. There's a lot of other tools like that that are being added to the toolbox every day that allow us to just bring analytical precision to the coaching and change and operational work that we know we need to do. I guess the last thing I'd say about this is 
the walking suggestion box part is just as important because the survey is an analytical exercise I can do one or two or three times a year. I can't do it that often. You got to spend a lot of time to do it properly. But there's nothing stopping me from positioning myself as the walking suggestion box and saying, I am always open. I am always ready to listen to anyone who works here who has a good idea or wants to be heard about something they feel really strongly about. I may or may not agree with it, but I really want to listen hard, demonstrate empathy and take in that information because I think that's a big part of the way you serve a CEO in an organization really well is just helping them understand what's going on. Well, a lot of times we are the only one that's willing to speak truth to power or say, hey, here's what people are really saying. Because it can't be hard right. to say that to the CEOs. That should be our role. And I think being that open door, and that walking suggestion box is, is terrific. You know, Matt, one of the questions that you were percolating in my mind as you were talking about this is, because you've done it so well with your employee listening strategy. It's obviously so core to how you do HR and drive culture. But what about organizations that have senior leaders who just aren't really buying in to listening to the employee survey? How should they be positioning this with their leaders? Part of being a good coach or a good change leader is understanding where your leaders are coming from. And I think the tools and ideas we have in HR today are very resilient and very adaptable to almost any situation. So what does that skeptical leader care about? And am I doing a good enough job connecting these tools with what they care about? So if they care about costs, the reason why you should understand where what your employees care about is that's how you attract talent and reduce the cost of talent acquisition or reduce the cost of attrition. I don't think I've ever met a business leader who's not interested in that. <laughs> And if they're not, it's kind of unusual. The other thing almost every business leader I've ever worked with cares about is how performance. So back to your point about high performance organization or high performance individual. There's a reason why, and again, Jim Collins' book is a great illust illustrator of this. There's a reason why most companies revert to the mean. Mean reversion of you become average over time if you don't fight really hard against it should scare every company. You know, your competitive advantage or what makes you really special, there's a lot of forces that are pushing you to lose that magic unless you work really hard at it. That's true organizationally. It's true individually. And if you understand that leader and you position yourself with that leader in a very pure way, like I almost think about the Venn diagram of what is the organization or the CEO asking us all to do? And what is that individual leader trying to achieve for themselves? The work is the, is the Venn diagram of those two things. And so I want to invest the time with all of these skeptical leaders to understand who they are, what they care about, what drives them, and what they're trying to achieve for the CEO. And if I listen hard to that and I, and I help them understand that I, I have no agenda. My only agenda is to help the CEO achieve their goals and to help that executive fulfill their potential and to be great at whatever they're tasked with doing. So if they believe me and they should believe me because, you know, I, I, that's my intention and my focus and I work really hard to keep that clear. 
then I just want them to be great. And the more great they are in the right direction for what oftentimes I'm helping them understand what the CEO is asking them to do and helping them unpack that problem solving. There's no HR agenda for them to fight against. The only agenda is helping everyone be more successful tomorrow than they were yesterday. Well, not having an agenda is really important. I think when HR does have an agenda, that's when things start to go the opposite way. Not only for that person, but for that organization, right? Because you lose the trust. Yeah. Everything you just talked about starts to fall aside. And I think the best HR leaders just stay focused on exactly like you said, trying to help the organization and the CEO and leaders reach the potential they have. Exactly. And the, look, the really tricky thing, it's funny about success when people reach the senior roles, the peers of our, our peers and colleagues, right? Uh, it's really hard to sustain greatness and to sustain excellence. And I definitely want, I've always wanted, and I've worked in companies where I had HR colleagues who've always felt the same way. If HR is objective and HR is really focused on building trust and HR is other centered and we have no agenda, we can have such an impact for the organization because the success of the CEO and the success of the senior leaders and the success of all of our employees, that's where we get joy and fulfillment from. If we don't have an agenda and everyone understands that and everyone trusts that, then they're going to bring us into their hardest problem because they can trust us and they know we're here to help them solve their hardest problem. And we earn that every day and we sustain that every day. And in my experience in these four companies, if you do that and you work that every day, it always works. It might take time. It does take time. These are skeptical people. You got to prove it to them every day that they, that they should pull you in and that they, when they pull you in, my goal is that people just say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know what Matt's doing, but when Matt's here or Matt's involved, it's better than when he's not involved. That's a great compliment. We've talked a lot about coaching. I know you are passionate about it. And actually in your spare time, when you're not coaching and helping organizations reach high performance, you are writing Harvard business case studies. And one of the latest ones you wrote was on Pete Carroll, who's the head of head coach for the CL Seahawks, also was a USC Trojan coach, or my wife and father went to school. And you was, the case that you wrote was titled Building a Winning Organization Through Purpose, Caring, and Inclusion. And you really got to spend time with Pete, who's one of the greatest coaches in the world. Tell us more about what you learned getting to know Pete and writing a case study around him. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. And if I just step back for a second, my collaboration with Daisy wasn't just limited to the HBR article. Daisy and I worked with Nathan Noria and Bill George, who wrote True North, to develop a course at HBS on authentic leadership. And the concept was, how do you showcase leaders in their totality as a whole person, not just as a one-dimensional cartoon character, but to actually unpack the human side of leadership And in so doing, achieve better levels of performance. And so over the last 20 years since I graduated, Daisy and I worked on a number of cases together. Bill and I wrote a case together. And then uh, we worked on some cases together on the history of BlackRock with Larry Fink and some of the Harvard folks. And then more recently, I got to work on this P. Carroll project with Ranjay Gulati, who recently wrote a book on Deep Purpose, which I highly recommend. But Ranjay and I got to know Pete 
who, for those who don't know Pete, he's the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, to your point, USC coach, had been the Patriot, the New England Patriots coach was fired and replaced with Bill Belichick and reinvented himself during that period of time and then became one of the most successful football coaches in the world, achieving the greatest heights in college and in the pros, which is really unusual and special. And Pete wrote a book called Win Forever. So when I talk about outperforming over a long period of time, Pete's whole philosophy is how you outperform over a long period of time in football. And if you're doing all the right things and building a system and building a culture on a football team of greatness and high performance, that's the goal because you just want to compete at the highest levels every single year. You're not going to win the championship every year. But if you're in the hunt and you're doing all the right things that you can control, the probability that you're going to win the Super Bowl is high. And the more that Ranjay and I dug into the way that Pete coaches, the more interested I got for two reasons. Because I think sports psychology, like people analytics, and Moneyball is a good example of this, is becoming more and more developed and more and more precise about the tools that unlock great performance. And I think it's a little leading indicator of tools that are being developed in sports that could be used in the HR field and could be used in companies. Uh, the, the basic idea that Pete is using is a very humanistic approach, which is if you follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you focus on creating psychological safety and meeting people where they are and actually being exceptionally good at inclusion, you're going to get the best results from people because you're actually helping them climb that Maslow pyramid to the highest levels of performance. And Pete is very skilled at taking players who've had a difficult time in other systems and helping them achieve higher levels of performance. And Geno Smith is a recent example of a great turnaround that no one saw coming, but Pete finds that that's kind of his craft. That's what Pete does. What's really interesting about that case is it's an unusual approach to coaches where you expect it to be much more of the dictatorial, top-down, almost inhumane way of coaching that we've all seen in the movies. And Pete's actually turning that on its head, using much more positive psychology mindfulness, well-being, Maslow's hierarchy, all these tools, having grown up being influenced by people like Tim Galloway, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, which is one of the iconic books, and Tim was one of Pete's mentors. Then, interestingly enough, Pete is mentoring Steve Kerr, who's won four championships in the NBA, who we talked to as part of the case study. And Steve, when he first got that job, of course, he'd played for Phil Jackson, who is one of the more innovative coaches out there, but really went deep with Pete to try to unpack how Pete had developed his system. And Steve has developed an incredible system. And there's a whole bunch of other coaches that come out of the Pete Carroll coaching tree who are all over college and pro sport, including the current coach of the New York Jets and many others. So that's exciting. But the other thing is, we also talked to Satya Nadella, who's very close to Pete. And if you look what Satya has done at Microsoft to create a very empathetic, modern growth mindset culture, it's a pretty extraordinary story. And I'm sure there's an HBS case about what Satya has done at Microsoft at this point. 
But for those of us in the HR profession, watch that space very closely on what Microsoft's doing and what you're seeing come out of sports psychology. One podcast I would recommend, in addition to JP's amazing series, Michael Gervais, who built a lot of Pete system, has a podcast called Finding Mastery. And Michael's mm -hmm. one of those pioneers of this space who works with the highest performing athletes across many different sports and tries to unpack what the techniques are that they use to achieve those levels of performance. I think a lot of these tools are just waiting to be tried inside of companies. And back to those skeptical executives, what are those skeptical executives the most interested in? Success. <laughs> and we can introduce them to tools that just help them become more successful than they would otherwise have been. And that gets the conversation going. We'll then have to prove the tools work, but we have some amazing tools in this field. And I think Pete's an example of adding surprising tools to the toolbox that are proven to work. Well, it's a great case. I will link to it. And I always try to do my best to link to the books that we mentioned in our podcast. And I will definitely check out Finding Mastery. Uh, you'll be keeping me pretty busy though, Matt. There's a lot of uh, good references in this podcast today for us. But you know what's interesting? I want to make a comment because I think one of the things that when you think about innovation, innovation is combining two things that probably don't usually go together. Sports mm -hmm. psychology and business, maybe, you know, econ and psychology. So I see a pattern in your career in terms of how you think. <laughs> yeah. Bringing things that aren't really always typically going to be thought of as HR, but bringing it into our toolkit and thinking about that. And so I think that's it's tremendous because when you think about football, you probably don't think about psychological safety. <laughs> Have you ever played football? <laughs> It's not really a, usually in an environment where it's psychologically safe. It's a pretty tough environment. Usually that's the way they coach, but Pete does it differently. Pete would argue if he were here with us, he would say, look, if you create psychological safety, the person you're working with is much more likely to hear and accept you challenging them and pushing them to be better and better and better than they otherwise would be. If you don't have psychological safety, there's a lot of wasted energy in that coaching and that interaction. So his point is, if you do the work on caring and inclusion and safety, you're still doing the challenging. Like you're either catching the touchdowns or you're not like on some level, this isn't about being nice. It's about being great. And Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit, which is another one I'd strongly recommend. She interviewed Pete as part of it. So we had a really good conversation with her. And I think her research is amazing. And she would see that Pete's creating that safety, but you still need the grit and you still need the challenge. It's just that with the safety, the grit and the challenge is much more effective and much more efficient and much more impactful. Matt, if you had one piece of advice for a next generation HR leader who want to be a better coach, what would it be? Well, I'll give you a rule of threes answer to that. And there's a lot of great coaching programs out there. I would highly recommend HR leaders do a certificate or just go deep on this in whatever way makes sense to them. Um, probably inspired by Pete and by many of the great executive coaches that I've gotten to work with. My rule of threes answer would be caring, clarity, and challenge. So if you just unpack what we just talked about, you got to care first. So if you're going to be a good coach, you got to build trust. The person's got to know that you have their back and that you're going to take the time to understand who they are, what their strengths are, what they need to work on, what drives them, what they care about. Once you do that, you can get started. Then it's about clarifying 
And I've always been a fan of the grow model because I think it's a really simple way of thinking about coaching, goal, reality, options, and will do. And I think our job as coaches is just clarifying, like, what goal, what are you really after? In reality, what are you really seeing? And so much of a struggle to see things clearly. It's just a natural human phenomenon, right? So giving people feedback, helping them process feedback, helping them understand reality a little bit more clearly, and then helping them problem solve. So what are you going to do about it? You're here. You want to go there. What's the best way to do that? And then challenges. Okay, now you got a plan. Are you actually going to do it? And you actually see in most change management that that follow-up with a trusted peer is by far the most important factor because history is riddled with well-laid plans that were never executed. So the challenge part is really important. And Angela could explain this much better than I can. That's about grit. That's about delivery. That's about discipline. But I think you need all three things to get it right. Last question for you, Matt. What's the one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Look, my word is agility. I think we should be, we should all be helping each other as a, as a field to practice this craft. Let's share these practices and tools with each other. I think your podcast is a hugely important contribution to this. So if we all have the tools and the tools will be changing and some, some people listening to this will have increasingly good ideas and let's listen hard to that and build out the toolbox. But then we need to be agile. We're entering a volatile period in history. I think that's causing a lot of stress, causing a lot of mental health challenges in the corporate world and more broadly in society. We need to be agile. We need to use those tools. We need to read the context of what our organizations are asking us to do, what our CEOs, where the CEOs pointing to want us to move. And we need to be agile and we need to be iterative, right? So let's just try stuff. And let's be humble about the stuff that works, we're going to do more of. And the stuff that don't work, that doesn't work in the culture we happen to be working in, we'll set those aside and then we'll try another tool. And I think if we follow those processes and we stand tall, you said a very important word earlier around courage. Part of the unsung heroes of the HR profession are, we got to have guts. We got to go in there and say the uncomfortable thing and say the, ask the hard question and challenge people to see the reality they're living in in a way they probably don't want to confront because change is hard and it's dangerous. It's difficult. We have to have guts, but if we follow our process in the right way with that mix of fierce resolve and humility, I think it's a winning formula. Matt, amazing, amazing conversation today. I really appreciate being on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for dropping in. My pleasure, JP. Always great to see you. And thanks again for the invitation. Great to be a part of it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Matt for his tremendous insights and perspectives on the role of the CHRO and how we can be a coach to our leaders and drive higher levels of performance. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with one other person. 
This really helps us grow the podcast and helps us with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Josh Seacrest, VP of Marketing and Customer Advocacy at Paradox, which is a conversational recruiting software that is transforming and automating hires for high-volume and frontline roles. Prior to joining Paradox, Josh was the head of Global Talent Strategy at McDonald's, where he was instrumental in implementing their Make Hire program that radically reduced the time it took to hire quality candidates. In our conversation, Josh and I will dive into today's labor market, the challenges of high-volume recruiting, and how companies are leveraging technology to improve the candidate experience and talent pipeline. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.